Governor Bill Lee calls the legislature back for its 60th special session and a chat with Senate Finance Chairman Bo Watson. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of July 1st. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. Natalie, I was, as I often am these days, out of town uh, for more news development. Yeah, well, uh, some of us stay around and work. Well, thank you for for once again uh, taking the lead on things. But the big news this week has been uh, that Governor Bill Lee has called the legislature back for a special session sometime, what day, in August? It is August 23rd, which is basically a month after the caucus will meet July 24th. The Republican caucus. Yes, the House Republican caucus will meet. July 24th, uh, when they will essentially pick who the next speaker is going to be. They will nominate someone to to be that person, and then uh, that will officially be voted on during the special session in August. Of course, all of this comes after uh, House Speaker Glenn Cassida announced he would resign on August 2nd. Uh, that comes after reporting from us and News Channel 5 related to text messages and other issues uh, with the House Speaker and his form, now former Chief of Staff, uh, Cade Cawthorn. Uh, it's it's a really, I, I guess, an interesting development in that nobody really foresaw this six months ago, let alone two weeks ago, or maybe two months ago, I guess. Um, so we will be coming back for one day it sounds like session one day yeah you know it's it it only has to be one day they're taking up officially they're taking up um some resolutions that change the rules for civil and criminal and juvenile court in the state uh, because it's a re- resolution and not a, a piece of legislation a bill that would become a law um it it doesn't have to have three readings so uh They only have to do the one reading. They can get in and out in a day. That's under, you know, under the assumption that nothing else is going to come up. Now, there have been rumblings this week, both by the House Majority Leader and the governor, who have essentially said uh, it's worth talking about whether we're going to do something about David Byrd, such as a, a vote to expel him during this special session. Bird is the lawmaker who's been accused by three women of sexually assaulting them when they were teenagers in the 1980s when he was their basketball coach. At this point, I would say that's a stretch because that would um, uh, delay uh, at least some of the procedural aspects of this. But it does seem like they are at least definitively going to have the special session after the governor issued his proclamation. It will be the first under Governor Bill Lee, uh, the last since 2016 when uh, Bill Haslam called one in order to handle some issues related to um, road funding. uh, That was a bill sponsored by, uh, of all people, uh, William Lamberth, who is now the majority leader. Uh, So we will, uh, as always, continue to stay on top of all special session news. Um, Stay tuned to our website and our newspaper for the latest developments. Got a lot more to cover on this podcast, so stay tuned. This week, we have with us here Senator Bo Watson. He is the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. 
Senator Watson, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Been wanting to be on the show for a long time. As you guys know, you, I'm an avid fan. You, long time listener. Yeah, yeah. You long are listener. a long time yep. Grand Divisions listener. We appreciate you listening. Don't always like what I hear on the show, but I always listen. <laughs> Who does, though? Yeah. Uh, so we, we wanted to talk to you about uh, the budget this year. Um, the budget passed. so Unanimously. Yes. Both so chambers. Tennessee has uh, a budget. You sure Bo, uh, Bo Mitchell didn't vote against it? I, I thought on the he voted no, against he did, it, and then, and then he when he came it. back over, okay, he changed okay, there it. You go, he, uh, there you go. Yeah, he, yeah. he changed it at the last. Incidentally, minute. I'm often confused with Bo Mitchell. So to your audience out there, it's Bo Watson, W A T S O N. Does that happen a lot? Actually, it does. Believe it or not, people who you know are in the Nashville area and are up here for different reasons, they'll ask me a question that is kind of totally foreign to me, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm and not that like, Bo. Well, you're Bo, aren't you? And I said, Yeah, but I'm Bo Watson. I'm the East Tennessee. There you go. Watson, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a thirty-eight point what five six billion dollars. Yeah, thirty yeah, thirty-eight and a, uh, thirty-eight billion and a half. Okay, and uh, I guess what we want to hear from you is what was the process like this year. So we went into this session all the way back in November, moments after Glenn Cassida was elected by his caucus to be speaker nominee. Took you less than one minute to get that. <laughs> he, <point. laughs> well, it's, it's relevant. It's relevant, statement. okay? Uh, he, he immediately announces, actually, I think he announced in his pitch and then with his gaggle with, with reporters right after, immediately says that as speaker, he is going to change the budget process to give the House of Representatives a, a greater role in it. Um, so I guess I want to hear from you about, did you feel like the budget process was any different this year? And did Glenn Casta succeed in increasing the House's role? Well, overall, was the budget process different? The answer is no. Um, I mean, there's just certain things that you have to do that are structural, that are kind of unavoidable, meaning, you know, the governor's got to bring his proposal to us. We have to take it through the various committees um, that in the Senate, and then the House has their process. Um, then the governor gets some beat feedback from us, and he's got to make his amended version proposal. And then the House and the Senate have to sit down and try and figure out, you know, what are we going to do? Um, where do we want to go? And what are we going to put forward and propose? Uh, that part of it wasn't really any different. Uh, the biggest difference was that uh, this was the first year that uh, I worked on the budget and uh, Charles Sargent was not uh, the finance leader um, in the House. So they had a lot of people who had never been through the process before. And so we had to spend a certain amount of time just saying, hey, here's kind of how this works. There are other ways to do it, I suppose, but this has worked really well for a long time. And sit down and tell us what your needs are, what your wants are. We'll sit down and tell you what our needs are, what our wants are. Let's try and figure out where they fit into what the governor has proposed. And so that part of it was the same. The, the process was pretty much the same. The players were different. The players were different. Um, and the, on the House side, you had um, a little bit more of the Speaker's involvement than we've had in the past, but that, that's okay. What about the, the new administration? I mean, you had a, a brand-new governor in there. Was that any different than, than dealing with former Governor Haslam? The, the administration has one really valuable tool, and that is a gentleman named David Thurman who works in the budget office. And David is a graduate with honors, uh, from the legislative branch of government. 
And so we have a really good working relationship with him. It's very collaborative. Uh, and so we, as we're developing things, while there is a, you know, a clear separation of powers between the two branches of government, we work alongside the budget office to say, hey, if we did X, what would happen? And if we did Y, what would happen? So since he's on the executive uh, side, you know, I know he's communicating that up the chain of command. But David, the citizens of Tennessee don't realize, I mean, that guy is like a treasure for us. So as, as part of the budget... Um, and I'll, I'll tell him to listen to the podcast so he can hear me. So. <laughs> of course. You're just trying to build up our listenership. Exactly. exactly. I'm always, always just Name trying to be, people trying to be a blessing here. Just trying to be a blessing. <laughs> as part of the budget, uh, I think the House had, what, like $18 million of discretionary spending, something like that. In, in the Senate's initial version of the budget, that wasn't there. You guys did not account for that. They were not getting that. Um and then in the in the version that passed, they they did get from what I understand pretty much everything they asked for. How did that happen? Well, you know, each each chamber has its own personality and characteristics. For a number of years, the House had taken the position, the Senate had agreed, that there were certain things that if they did not have either statewide or regional application, we would not consider them. Okay. But, you know, when you have new leadership, new people, you know, people can decide, well, that's not the way we want the rules to be applied this time. And so uh, in, you know, our discussions with them, there are certain things that the House wanted. And, you know, at some point in a negotiating process, I don't care whether it's the legislature or it's in your business, you have to come to the conclusion, is this a hill we want to die on, right? Um, and these were really important needs to the House, uh, they weren't necessarily important needs to the Senate, uh, but they weren't of such magnitude that, that we were going to keep us here until June or July trying to hammer our way through those things. Talk a little bit about the uh, Katie Beckett uh, program and the funding of that. I mean, that was one of the sort of last-minute holdups of the le- the budget process. Um, how, did, how did you guys come to the agreement that you ended up coming to? Well, Charles Sargent and I had been talking about Katie Beckett for about five years. Now, full disclosure, uh, I work in the healthcare world. I work for HCA, uh, Park Ridge Medical Center in, in, in Chattanooga. So I was kind of familiar with, with, with that. Um, and because I'm a physical therapist, I, I deal in, 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 throughout my life with folks who have various different types of, of, of limitations physically. So I was aware of it. So Charles and I have been talking about it um, for a while, and we never really could figure out the, the financing of it. Now, TenCare has... A, had a similar kind of program, but it wasn't really the Katie Beckett program. Um, obviously, uh, despite cutting $845 million in taxes since 2011, uh, Tennessee's revenues have just been incredibly robust. I mean, we are just on a trajectory right now that, you know, Joel uh, or Allison, if you were here 25 years ago, you never would imagine that, that we would be in the position that we're in. So because we've been doing so well economically, we started looking at, you know, could we do something? And from the Senate's perspective, the question is, if we do something, is it something that's sustainable? So there was a lot of testimony uh, in both the House uh, and the Senate. Uh, The Senate originally settled on a little bit lower version of Katie Beckett, only because we just tend to be a little bit more fiscally conservative than 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 our housemates do. And so we settled on a little bit lower number that we thought, you know, even if things really go south, we can fund this. 
Um, the House was a little bit uh, more inclined to try and be a little more robust. And again, we looked at the numbers, looked at them over time, and said, you know, we think the $27 million or so is, is something that we can manage um, over the duration. Uh, obviously, the concern that uh, those of us that are really fiscally conservative hawks is that we've underestimated the number of people who might be eligible for Katie Beckett. So the estimate is somewhere around 3,000, 3,500. Um, if we're off, then, you know, it's going to cost us and, and we're low, then you know, our concern is that, gosh, how do we, how do we fund that? Because once that $27 million's gone, and actually it's matched with federal dollars, so roughly, I'll just say $80 million to be in the ballpark. Once that $80 million is gone, then how do we start figuring out what to do? So that, that was the Senate's concern, to maybe take a little bit slower pace at it. But in the conversation, the House you know, was really committed to it. That had a lot of testimony uh, behind it. Uh, they had a good argument uh, of why we needed to go the full distance when we sat and talked about it, and we ultimately decided to do that. I mean, why you've seen this fight for a number of years, you said, or at least known about the issue for a number of years that you have worked on it with with now uh, the late Charles Sargent. But why was this year the year? Was it because there were the parents there that were kind of presenting their cases directly to both chambers? You know, what was kind of the Well, impetus? I should answer you that with yes, but the, the, the real answer is that, that it's a combination of that but really it's it's like anything else we we've kind of been watching this talking about different scenarios of you know what we might do uh, given certain circumstances and the reality of it is has was this year was that our recurring revenues our recurring revenues which for those who don't pay attention to this stuff which is about 99.9 percent <laughs> of the people you know a recurring revenue is one that you anticipate will be there year over year from this time forward and we had never been, Charles and I looked at it in the past, we'd never been really confident that that recurring revenue was going to be there. And, mm-hmm. and this year we, we were. We were mm-hmm. like, you know, we've got a, a couple of, we've got the new revenue streams, even though we're, 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 we're putting some money aside, we've got this online sales revenue that we haven't really recognized before. We've now got that. So this is a good spot that at least, even if the professional privilege tax thing, you know, if we can't sustain that, we've still got that bucket we can go back to because we left, you know, roughly $15 million, uh, in, in the in the bank for that. So it was just that the stars aligned, both the public interest in it had, had increased over time. Uh, we saw a definitive need. And we had the resources to do it. You know, and I know, you know, last week you had the, the leader of the Democrat Party in here. And I just find it interesting, some of the things that Republicans have done that we often get criticized for not doing, right? So we're always criticized for our positions on health care, and yet we're the ones that expanded uh, health care in terms of Katie Beckett. We're always criticized on education, but, you're, you're, but yet we're the ones who have spent more money in capital projects on education. Uh, we're the ones who, during the recession uh, after uh, 2007, 2008, did not reduce spending in education when everybody else did. Every other state but two cut education funding. Um, we didn't. We're the ones who figured out how to give uh, virtually a free education, higher education. To, I mean, we've done a lot of things that people don't typically think of Republicans doing. Now, we've cut taxes, which is what Republicans um, tend to do. But uh, we've done a lot of the things to for the communities and for the states that people often don't look at Republicans and say that's what they would do. And Katie Beckett would be one of those, yet you know, we've been working on that for a while. One of the new ideas that came up, or at least a rehashed 
uh, version of an old idea has been this this education savings account, obviously passed this year. Um, there's a lot of controversy related to it, but the thing I want to ask you about is the money. Um, even in the final days of the session, it was a little unclear exactly how much it was going to cost uh, and down the line what it might cost the state. Can you give us a, a breakdown of you know what's, what's it at in next year's budget? I know you guys kind of reduced uh, what initially it would have been uh, costing uh, the state, and then what's it going to be five years from now? Right. So the so the idea. So we put I think twenty five million in the budget for this year, but it's really kind of sitting there, and then we'll put an additional twenty five million in the budget next year, which will bring it to fifty million, and then they'll start. Students will start applying. The thought is that, you know, that with fifty million there, you'll have you might spend thirty one million. You'd have nineteen million left over that would then be available for. Um, grants to all other schools. One of the gems of that piece of legislation that everybody kept missing was that after year three, there's going to be school improvement grants uh, to the tune of about $50, $150 million available for all states. I mean, excuse me, all schools all across the but state. Just to clarify, that's only if they're, I guess, on this priority list, though, struggling right, schools? Right, right. It's okay. for schools that, that, right, correct. It's for schools that are, you know, having certain challenges. It's right. a school improvement grant. Sure. But that's, I mean, that's additional resources um, for the school. So, if you if you calculate that the um, ESAs will be in in Shelby and Davidson County will be completely utilized at all fifteen thousand of them we completely utilize, then we will have to come back in the next couple of sessions and add some additional funding to it. That's the that's if it's maximized. Mm-hmm. Obviously. Most don't think that will happen. There may be some funding gaps that we have to fill, and we've kind of acknowledged that internally that, hey, if this really takes off, we may have to come back and address that. But that's that's often true in a lot of pieces of legislation, especially pilot kind of legisla- legislation where you're trying to figure out, you know, how does it work, how will it work, and if it is working, how many people will take it up. So there there is a little bit of speculation in there, sure. And I mean, overall, though, are you concerned that this could balloon the, the you know, the finances of the state or will, uh, are you confident that the revenues are there that we can continually uh, provide the funding for this program? I, I don't think the Senate would have agreed to, you know, if you remember when on the last day of session mm-hmm. when this was going on, we were trying to figure out, okay, these numbers don't seem to be adding up. I think y'all had maybe, or somebody had run an article in the paper and Somebody came up to my desk and said, have you seen this? this? And I was like, no, I haven't seen that. Who, who has the audacity to write that? But anyway, no. <laughs> that was me. Yeah, of course, it was. of course it was. <laughs> and and so I think, you know, I think, again, if you if it if it tops out at 15,000 students, um, then we could, you know, we will have to come back and put some money in uh, revenues. But I think we have ample reserves you know, if we need to, I don't think we will. I think uh, our anticipation is that our revenue growth is going to be good for the next three to five years. And uh, so we think we have the, the capacity to absorb it. And uh, again, that's assuming 100% uptake, right. which right. I'm not sure has happened in any mm-hmm. state that's done it. I wanted to talk to you uh, about transparency in the budget process. So I know as reporters this this year, you know, we had conversations amongst ourselves and we you know, heard from the public some about concerns about how many people are actually involved in crafting the budget. Um, so talk, I guess, from your perspective as the man tasked with doing that about 
what maybe you perceive as the need to have closed door conversations and why that's helpful or how involved are members in that? How much input does your rank and file member have in the budget process? How many people are in the room where the budget is actually, you know, being crafted? Uh, So talk a little bit about that. I know, uh, you know, Full disclosure, people may have remembered me tweeting at one point about trying to show up to one of these meetings, and and it was... You talked about it on one of your shows here. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> yeah. Listen, yeah. I'm so, sure you did. Look, so I can only speak for the Senate, okay? So uh, uh, I, don't, I don't deal with how they do in the House. Um, when people talk about transparency and open government, um, remember that every person that is elected here is the eyes, the ears, and the voice of a constituency back home. So that is their their entree and their transparency into the process. That's their entree into the process. The Senate is very careful about we never violate any of the quorum rules. So if we have a meeting with a group of members to say, hey, we need you to look at this part of the budget and tell you what you think, we're always very careful that we do not violate any of the quorum, any of the quorum rules. The budget is a huge document, and there are a lot of moving pieces to it. Uh, we have 33 members in the Senate. I do my very best to include all 33 members in, in the discussion. Um, there are points in the process where I need to sit down with my leadership on Senate finance, uh, John Stevens and Joey Hensley, and say, what are we hearing in the caucus about these particular issues? There are times in the process when I need to sit down with Senate leadership, the lieutenant governor, the majority leader, the caucus leader, and my leadership on finance and say, here's where things are. What are you hearing amongst the body? Uh, Then we start working with individual members, uh, particularly through the committee process. Now, one thing that's different, and the House did it a little bit different this year, but one of the things that's different between the House and the Senate is that the budget goes through every committee in in the Senate. So we take the budget, and depending on subject matter, we divide it up between the Finance Committee, the Health Committee, etc. That is a public display in a public discussion of the budget. Okay? Then when amendments are proposed to the budget, the finance committee, both the tax side or the revenue side, which is Chairman uh, Joey Hensley manages, that comes before the public. And then the appropriation side, which is Chairman John Stevens, that becomes the public. Those two committees deal with that, re- make a recommendation to the full committee. There is a time when I sit down with leadership and various members and say, hey, you're on the health committee is this an important issue to the health committee, and do I need to include it in the Senate's uh, presentation? However, when, when when it goes to committee, though, those amendments have pretty much already been decided for the most part, would you say? Uh, many of the uh, – because we've sat down and talked to members about, hey, how important is this? Um, again, as I referenced earlier, there was a time when, when, when we would go – Okay, is this a local, regional, statewide? You know, what's the application of this? Who are these people? Now, there does come a point in time when the Senate's got to talk to the House, right, which is probably the point that you're talking about. Now, on the Senate side, I bring my three negotiators, or uh, I usually have the caucus leader as part of our team because he uh, knows the caucus and I bring my leaders from the finance team and then the majority leader. And that's that's our negotiating team. And we sit down with the House just to say, hey, here's kind of where we are. Where are y'all? 
the public transparency and uh, debate is when we've kind of put something on paper that we can present and have a debate about. So there is a, like with any organization, you have to have some kind of meeting of the minds before you put your final product out. The analogy I would make is... I may be working on a piece of legislation right now, and until I get it in a form that I'm actually comfortable with the, cu- the, the public seeing so that they can then discern whether they like or they don't like it, I kind of hold it close to my vest. Mm-hmm. And even with other members, I may be working on a piece of legislation with three or four other members, and I work with those three or four other members, but then when we have a product that we're ready to present and say, okay, here's what we're doing, here's what we're presenting, now tell us what you think. Uh, that's how the process works. Otherwise, you you spend, if you try and sit there and grind through that with all the lights and cameras and everything on you, it's harder to to get a finished product. Bo Watson, holding his cards close. Well, it's not so much holding his cards close. I think people expect us to be efficient in what we do and be effective in what we do. And I think we've, we've done that. It's not, I mean, I don't consider it to be any great secret that you know, you've got to kind of hammer out the differences and you've got to have a, a space where leadership can sit down. Again, we are very sensitive to the to the quorum requirements so that we we never meet with a group that, and because we have such a large majority in the Senate, you know, if, we have to break groups up because we could very easily break the quorum rule and we're very careful not to do that. But to your point about the public's input, every member of the Senate, Republican and Democrat alike have the opportunity to weigh in on the on their their on the budget. I go to to uh, uh, Leader Yarbrough in the process and say, "Here's where we're going with this. Here's what what are, what are y'all's needs, and uh, what are your interests." And I know there's things you have to push back on and things that you can support, and I get that. Uh, so we try to be as inclusive as we possibly can um, in in the uh, in the Senate. There also is, I guess, a little bit of money being set aside for rural hospital, uh, what's it called, the Rural Hospital Transformation Act. Thank you. That was my legislation, yeah. Yeah. So tell us just very briefly what that's doing, how much money that is. So, so last year, I carried a bill that would, uh, through over three years, we'd invest a million dollars a year in what was called the Rural Hospital Transformation Act. And it is an attempt to address the obvious problem that everyone recognizes is that, and it's not unique to Tennessee, is that rural hospitals across this country are struggling in the current um, health envir- healthcare environment. There are a lot of reasons for that. Um, and this uh, money is an investment to help rural hospitals evaluate themselves to decide what kind of model they can use in order to be more uh, effective in today's healthcare marketplace. And so is that about a million a year? Well, it's a million a year for now. I think at some point the legislature is going to have to, you know, those are for that million dollars helps with analysis, for lack of a better term. The question will be in the next couple of years is, okay, now what role does the legislature or does the state play in assistance or not in terms of implementation? So if I come up with a plan to save my rural hospital, but I need a million dollars of capital and I don't have a million dollars and I can't find a million dollars – is that does the state participate in something like that? That's yeah. kind of the next phase of development. And I think that's going to be a real issue because what even by conservative estimates, there's been about ten hospital closures in the state in uh, recent years. You could say that number's higher if you're counting hospitals that have cut, you know, like uh, 
services other than emergency departments and things like that. Um, but that is something, you know, that uh, rural areas in Tennessee are facing, and it seems like, you know, a uh, million dollars, how far will that go? I mean, does it, is that something you would advocate for more funding for that program? Well, it's a start. And again, uh, like ESAs, it's a start so we can see, you know, what what does this do and what is the need? Um, what are the strategies that we can use? And again, we're not the only state. Uh, every state is struggling with this. Every state is struggling with rural, pick your state, rural Tennessee, rural Alabama, rural California. I mean, they're all having issues with how do we deal with some of the issues um, specific to rural America. This governor, uh, Governor Lee, is committed to working on solutions for rural Tennessee. We know that hospitals are more than just institutions of health care. They are economic engines in communities. And so when one closes or one has a reduction in force, it has an impact. It's going to be hard to recruit a large industry to a rural area that doesn't have reasonable access to a medical facility. I mean, that's not health. That's not the health care argument. That's an economic argument. And that's why, if you look, who's running this shop for me is not the Department of Health. This is being run out of economic and community development because I said, this is an economic issue. This isn't just about access to health care. This is about these things are economic engines that spin off into other places in their communities, and you can't attract companies to rural Tennessee and not have some kind of health care system in place for them. I know it's not an easy answer, but Democrats often say that the, the rural hospital closures is fueled by the fact that, that Republicans specifically in Tennessee didn't expand Obamacare. I mean, what's your what's that, your response? That's, that's just a false narrative. And I mean, so, it's just so a what false are so, narrative. sort of the driving well, factors I mean, in your you, mind? Well, there, there are a lot of driving factors. Uh, the consolidation of health care as a, as a strategy to control costs is one of the important things. Um, Rural hospitals' inability to attract um, uh, specialties and other physician-type services. I mean, physicians uh, have businesses that they operate, and in, in, in they're small businesses, and they have to have patient throughput to be uh, successful. Uh, for years, we've seen that in the area of mental health and psychiatry, where psychiatry doesn't go to the rural areas because there's just not enough. There's just not enough patient flow there. They go to the urban areas. Um, the um, you know, you could if you're at some of these hospitals who had, I'll just as a hypothetical, they had a thirty. It's a thirty bed hospital. They have an average daily census of five patients. Mm-hmm. So you expand Medicaid. Now they have an average daily census of seven patients. You haven't saved the hospital. It hasn't done anything for the hospital. The other thing is transportation networks. People even in the rural areas. And because of the specialization of healthcare, they will look for a specialist who is typically located in an urban-suburban area. So there was a lot of flight out of rural healthcare into the suburban-urban area. So the model that rural hospitals have operated under for 50 years is shifting on them. And regardless of what you do with the payer, that that shift is still occurring. And part of the, the goal behind the Hospital Transformation Act is to say, hey, we're going to try and help you with some of this analysis to figure out how you adjust to that. Many hospitals are poorly managed. I mean, there are a lot of reasons. It's it's a false narrative to say if you had done this one thing, it would have made a, made a difference. I just I just disagree with that. 
We don't usually ask our guests this, but because you're a loyal listener, yeah. I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to critique Grand Division. So do you have any <laughs> do you have any feedback for us? What would improve this podcast, Chairman Watson? No, you guys do. Y'all, y'all probably edit this out since you have the ability to edit. So I appreciate the trick question. But um, now, I, I, you know, I, I, we don't talk enough about, in, in all seriousness, we don't really talk enough about state government because it's not as... Um, entertaining perhaps or as interesting as the federal government stuff. I mean, you've got, you know, news channels that run 24 hours a day talking about the Democrat debate last night and analyzing it and cutting it now all the different pieces. And, and that's entertainment for people. Uh, you know, I really appreciate y'all doing that. And with all sincerity, I really do appreciate y'all doing this because, you know, state government, even when we do things that you may or disagree with, um, we do things. Right. I mean, we we do things. We we have a budget. You may not agree with everything in the budget. You may not like the entire process of the budget. You could certainly go into budget and pick things that you said, hey, I don't like that or that's wasteful spending or we can all do that. Okay, I get that. But we do it. We don't do a continuing resolution. We spend what we 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 have. We don't spend any more. You know, we're not a perfect state. Right. We're you know, we're a middle class, and oh, Trace has heard me give this. Uh, Trace is in the studio for those who aren't here. <laughs> um, has heard me give this. We're a middle. We're a, we're a middle to lower middle class state. That's who we are. If we were a family, that's who we are. So if you're a middle to lower middle class family, you watch every penny. You try not to go into to debt. You try to pay uh, your obligations, and that's what we try. That's how we try and run state government. And I wish more people would engage themselves in the process because I will tell you. At no level of government can you have more input and see your idea written into a law than you can at, at, at the state level. And uh, and so I hope people will engage in programs like yours and say, hey, I'm going to call Bo Watson on the phone and first tell him what a great guy he is and then say, hey, I've got an idea for a piece of legislation because that's really, that's really how we get most of our ideas. Well, and I think from Natalie and I's perspective, you know, that's why we do what we do because, you know, it's important to, to note how much these decisions that you guys as politicians make on your everyday lives as a Tennessean. So uh, yeah. we'll continue to do it and appreciate you coming on today. So yeah, thank, thank you. you for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Bo Watson, everyone, not Bo Mitchell. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This week, we wanted to bring on Elena Sauber. She is one of our Williamson County reporters uh, who's actually working on a story right now that takes her out of Williamson County a bit, uh, but it's a fascinating story. Elena, tell us what the heck is going on in Ridgetop right now. Sure. So Richtop, Tennessee, it uh, kind of straddles the border between Robertson and Davidson counties. It's mostly in Robertson County. Um, it's a city of just over 2,000 people. And on June 10th, um, Residents were pretty taken aback when, uh, unbeknownst to them, the town's board of mayor and aldermen voted to abolish the city's police department. Um, no more police. No, no more police uh, as of. Uh, it actually was a 16-minute meeting, including uh, invocation and the Pledge of Allegiance. So it happened very quickly. Um, residents say that there was a violation of um, 
op- the Open Meetings Act, uh, that not only was uh, the public not given adequate notice ahead of time that this special meeting would be held, but also that the agenda um, didn't say anything about whether they were even going to discuss abolishing the police department. So, so I guess it begs the question, why did they abolish the police? That's a fantastic question. And it wasn't like a woke thing either. <laughs> it's not because this is like an activist town who don't like the cops. <laughs> quite uh, quite the contrary. This is um, a small community, a pretty conservative community where uh, people are really, really backing the police. And it all kind of starts uh, with... Um, a situation that you wouldn't really expect, which is, you know, the chief of police, uh, Brian Morris, he's been with the department since 2010. He's been the chief since late 2015. Um, he started noticing some pretty strange things going on with the city's budget um, a few years ago when they told him that uh, his department was kind of in the hole about $50,000 because they didn't meet their projected $300,000 in revenue from writing traffic tickets, again, in a town of 2,000 people. Um, That's a whole lot of ticket money. It is. It is. And granted, a state route does go through the, the city, so a lot of those tickets are probably people just passing through. But um, it's really hard uh, uh, for a force of about six six officers to to meet that, and they they actually never had. So when they kind of started putting on more pressure to write more and more tickets and kind of hit this revenue mark, uh, he started pushing back and he started telling the board members, "Look, look, this is illegal. This is against the law. You." you Towns can't have ticket quotas um, just as a, a revenue mechanism, and we're not going to do it. That's not that's not what police work is about. And and they've kind of run into an issue from what I understand. There actually is a law that prohibits them from doing something like this, the, the police department from having a quota. Is that? Well, this is where things get really interesting because, yes, there is a law on the books. Um, it's passed in the 2010 legislative session that specifically says um, – governmental entities cannot set uh, a ticket quota um, as a measure to to raise revenue and they can't kind of you know threaten officers or um, pressure officers to write a certain number of tickets to reach a, a certain amount of revenue but there's no consequences right well there were when the bill was introduced but thanks uh, to may beavers yeah so um <laughs> and good old may well um at the time, uh, former Senator Beavers uh, motioned for an amendment to basically remove all of the teeth from this bill. So essentially, it still said that it was illegal for towns and cities to set traffic uh, ticket quotas, but it removed any penalty from that law. So as the bill originally was written, uh, it would have been grounds for removal from elected office if uh, elected officials were found to be doing this. That amendment effectively removed that entire provision from the bill. So now um, ticket quotas are illegal on paper in Tennessee, but there's no punishment for it on the books. So there's a a couple of um, major things in this story, but two of the more newsy developments in this is that I guess the FBI is possibly looking into this and maybe uh, one state lawmaker asked the uh, comptroller to look into it. Yeah. So um, what I know about the FBI's involvement is very limited. Um, I I have heard that they're having conversations with um, certain city officials about what's going on. And um, keep in mind, I think this goes far beyond just um, the illegal illegal ticket quotas. Um, you know, I don't want to get into much into speculation, but I think there are a lot of questions about the management of the town's funds over the past several years, um, kind of the way that the, the 
um, their financial records have been kept, um, and whether there's really an adequate segregation of administrative duties between uh, town officials, because the staff is so small. And you run into this problem a lot in small towns. When you have limited resources, limited funds, and limited staff, you get a lot of overlap between who is signing the checks and who's cutting the checks, and who's you know keeping the books, and, and are there proper checks and balances in place to make sure that everyone's following the laws. So as far as I can tell, I believe that's what part of what the FBI is looking into. Now, on the state level, um, yes, Senator Kerry Roberts has written and sent a letter to the Tennessee Comptroller's office, actually in response to um, many letters that he's received containing allegations against the town of financial mismanagement, um, destroying records, um, obtaining um, confidential police records related to ongoing investigations and things of that nature. So Senator Roberts' letter to the Comptroller essentially says... um, this, these are really concerning allegations. I'm asking you to look into it and look into the town's finances further. And um, if they're true, then it should be handled accordingly. And if they're not, the town should be exonerated. Uh, Elena, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. You can find us at our usual place on Tuesday, uh, anywhere you get your uh, podcasts, iTunes, etc. Please continue to rate us if you can. Uh, The podcast is produced by Erica Whitney and John Garcia. We'll be back, back next week. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. 